This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. So before we get into this week's episode, a quick announcement. The Plant Yourself Podcast is a labor of love. The people whom I have on as guests are donating their time to get their message out and help the world become a better place. There are several people who are generous donors to the podcast who provide a one-time or, or monthly modest payments to uh, help defray some of the development costs. But mostly the labor of love is mine. Um, we're up to 120 episodes, and you might be able to imagine the amount of time and effort and energy and expense that goes into this. But uh, I couldn't have before I started, so maybe you can't either. So one of the things um, I do is try to make a living so that I can continue to provide this service that, uh, that gives back to the communities that I care about and to the world that I live in and that I want my children to live in. And to that end, I would like you to do something for me today. Uh, you may know that I have co-written a book with lead author Dr. Garth Davis. It's called Protein Aholic. That's protein, the letter A, and holic, H-O-L-I-C. It comes out October 6th, but that's not what I'm talking about yet. Right now, we have just launched a thunderclap campaign, and if you don't know what that is, I didn't either. It's basically like crowd speak, where we're going to get people to donate Facebook posts and tweets, that's all you got to donate, one post on Facebook or one tweet to go out at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on October 6th, the uh, release date, the launch date for Proteinaholic. And if you would do that and spread the word and help other people do it, what, we, what will happen is we'll get a massive boost on that day. It will possibly hit the Amazon bestseller list, New York Times bestseller list. And once that happens, it kind of creates a snowball effect and we can spread the word far and wide. So if you like the podcast, if you enjoy the message, if you enjoy plant-based living and you'd like to give back, that's a fantastic way right now. And here's how you do it. Go to thunderclap.it. If you can't remember that, just Google Thunderclap and it'll be the first listing. And then in the search bar at the top, either type in Proteinaholic, spelled the way I said, Protein, A-H-O-L-I-C. Or you can just type in right now, you can type in Garth, G-A-R-T-H, the lead author, and you'll come up and you'll see the Proteinaholic page. You click on that and it takes you to where you can sign up and agree to Twitter about it, tweet about it, or Facebook about it, just one on that day. And we're hoping to reach a lot, a lot, a lot of people. So if you've been looking for an easy way to give back to the Plant Yourself podcast, that is it. Today's episode features Hank Weisinger, who is the author of a really empowering book called Performing Under Pressure. Hank is a New York Times bestselling author, and he has consulted with some of the biggest names in business, sports, government, healthcare, and he has worked with people who are under pressure like I couldn't even imagine. And in his book, Performing Under Pressure, he combines a reverence for published research, something that I really appreciate, with decades of professional experience, and he's a great storyteller. So the book is not only helpful, it's also engaging, dramatic, memorable, lots of stories of people who did well under pressure, who buckled, uh, who learned how to deal with pressure and improve their lives. And there's a lot of myths about pressure, like we perform better under pressure, some people perform better under pressure, other people choke, pressure and stress are the same thing. And when we unpack these, you can really see how 
understanding pressure can add years to our life, can make us more successful, happier, healthier, and how some of the ways our society misunderstands pressure and causes us to stress out over it can really affect our health on all levels. So without further ado, Hank Weisinger, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. Happy to be with you. Yeah, I'm really finding your book, Performing Under Pressure, very valuable in lots of ways. And in frankly, lots of ways I didn't expect, you know, I read it uh, dutifully to be prepared for this interview and to to share your insights. But I'm finding in just a short time that it's incredibly actionable. And my own life is improved. And some of my coaching clients are are finding benefit almost immediately from from these concepts. So I'm really excited to, uh, to ask you about them and uh, and get into them with you today. Great, great. As a psychologist, that is very important to uh, have something that is very usable and uh, accessible, so people can start to get some results in their in their life. Uh, so, so I'd like to start with um, the question that I asked you in the email, which is help me frame why performing under pressure and not choking or buckling or um, giving up is so important from a perspective of, you know, physical health, mental health. Like, wh why are we talking about this? Why isn't this uh, just a topic for, you know, a business show? Well, I think that the feeling of pressure, usually we think in terms of performing under pressure. Uh, we, we relate it a lot to sports or uh, in an interview situation or the student on, on a test. And, and that focuses on, you know, our performance, but from a mental health, and I think even a physical health um, perspective, the pressure is not something that we welcome in our, in our lives. Intuitively, you know that it doesn't feel good. Very few people listening come home and say to their partner, could you please give me some more pressure in our, in our household? And kids do not come home from school gee, I wish I was under more pressure at, at school. And I find that one of the reasons we don't like it is that inherent in any pressure situation is anxiety. And anxiety for most people is a uh, culprit in their, in their life. It has bad physiological effects and it has bad, uh, you know, mental Effects. There's really not a upside of anxiety, except for the fact that it becomes a a warning situation. A, uh, it makes us feel vulnerable. You know, back in the day of the savanna, uh, for early man, anxiety was a, a friend because it told you that you were at risk. When somebody is anxious at work, anxiety really means uncertainty. They are feeling that their job is at risk. Uh, you're, you're a sports fan is watching a, a game only when it's when it's uh, close. You're feeling on the edge of your seat. You're very anxious. That that's not a comfortable feeling uh, for me, and it it becomes a weight after a while. I, I think one of the terms that I sort of coined is what I call performance anxiety, and I think this is what everybody is experiencing, and that is the feeling of constantly having to produce and perform. And that feeling keeps people up 
at night and it wakes them up in the morning. It's like a perpetual feeling. You know, the cover of the book is Atlas uh, holding the globe. He, Atlas is not performing under pressure. The, he, he was told to hold the globe as a punishment. That's really, I think, how most people feel pressure is. It's like a punishing type of situation. It impacts our mental health. In the area of substance abuse, for example, one of the major reasons that people have relapses is they get into a situation and the, quote, pressure becomes too much. So then they resort back to their primary uh, coping me methods, which for people with substance abuse is either uh, drugs or alcohol. Many people have uh, eating problems. So they go somewhere and they, the pressure of their of their life is something that they can't handle. And what do they do? They make themselves feel better in the way that people with eating problems, especially obesity, have learned to make themselves feel better is through uh, going to the refrigerator and getting out their, their comfort foods. So because we have never, very few people have actually learned how to handle pressure situations, what we bring to the table in a pressure moment are typically uh, strategies that tend to that tend to work against us. Every psychiatrist will tell you that all the executives that he or she sees are experiencing enormous pressure, and, and most people confuse pressure and stress. Stress sometimes can help you. If I have a a, a student who is not performing to his or her capabilities or a staff, I can make some demands on them. That is what is, that's what stress is, demands that we feel, and that will make them more productive up to a point. But if we get overwhelmed with stress, then it works against us. But the point I want readers and listeners to pick up on is that sometimes Stress can be helpful. Pressure is never helpful. Pressure's job is to get rid of you from an evolutionary point of view. And those who can handle pressure tend to advance. You know, we, we were talking about sports before we came on the air. And one of the things I used to think growing up is that the idea of the clutch player is rising to the occasion. Nobody rises to the occasion. You, you can't do better than your best which might not be good enough, but if you don't do your best, you have no chance of success in anything. So the idea of handling pressure is not to rise to the occasion, but it's to immunize yourself to the negative effects that pressure uh, brings upon us. Okay. So one of the things that you do at the very beginning of the book is you address the myth of the pressure player that people can somehow or, you know, there's some clutch players, there's some people who rise to the occasion, who, you know, hit the three point shot at the buzzer, who will make the perfect speech. And it's the pressure situation that brings it out. And otherwise, they're perfectly ordinary. But it's that moment, you know, we talk about Reggie Jackson from the Yankees, Mr. October. Why is that a myth? And what 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 evidence do you have? And and, and what's, what are the mechanisms for understanding why that's a myth and it's not helpful? Well, let's start out with uh, the film. Did you ever see The Natural? 
I did. Robert Redford. That's right. Robert Redford, where he plays the character, the baseball player, Roy Hobbs. Now, do you remember the ending? No. <laughs> In the ending of the film, for those who haven't seen it, Roy Hobbs is up with uh, the game's on the line. It's a deciding game. It's the ninth inning. There's two strikes on him. Now, every baseball fan has seen the reality of the scenario thousands of times. And the pitcher throws the ball, and then cameras slow down the action, and he hits this majestic home run that uh, goes into the lights, and it smashes the lights, which automatically then transform into uh, like a firework display. And everybody's saying, Roy Hobbs, he came through. He's great. Uh, in the book, written in 1952 by Bernard Malman, same situation, he struck out. Now, that's the reality. Nobody's going to a Robert Redford movie, and I, I, I would trust he's not taking a part where he strikes out in the crucial part of the, of the film. And we see this all the time. Michael Jordan, in one of the playoffs, I forgot the year, it's in the book, he hits a buzzer shot, but the, the, the rest of the playoffs, he was terrible. Derek Jeter had a 310 lifetime batting average. That is a Hall of Fame number. In playoffs in the World Series, his batting average was 310. He didn't rise to the occasion. He just didn't choke. There was a study that was done in uh, 2009 where they looked at, I believe it was um, five years of all NBA games, every single one, um, where they looked at the pressure moments, which were defined as the last minute of the game, shooting foul shots when you were losing by one point or two points. Um, all NBA players shoot worse in a pressure moment at the end of the game than they do at the beginning. And what fans and media are great at is they practice what behavioral finance people would call the law of small numbers. So a person hits a game-winning basket and all of a sudden he's clutched. You know, what about the 20 shots that he missed before that? That just becomes almost, quote, like a, a lucky shot. It's like a batter who has been 0 for 25, and then he finally gets a hit. He didn't come through. It was just a law of averages. So these studies in both basketball and baseball show that there are no clutch players. There are clutch hits, but there are not clutch players. Nobody is rising to the occasion. Uh, the A student, for example, the C student's never getting 1,600 on their SATs. But the A student, many times, will choke. So choking is a reality. You see it in every sporting event. Rising to the occasion is a total myth. You can just do your best. And have you ever noticed that athletes, when they lose, if they played their best, they don't feel bad? They basically say, you know, the other guy, I give them credit. He, he played great. The shame, there's no shame in losing when you do your best, but they feel bad when they didn't do their best, when they played below their capabilities. Tom Brady throws two touchdown passes in the last three minutes of, of a game, and then everybody forgets the two interceptions he threw in the first half of the game when time was running out in the, in the half. So we remember, we have cognitive biases, we remember the positives. Derek Jeter, when he became Mr. November, and he hit that home run down the right field line, okay, for the rest of that series, I think he batted below 200. 
So how does he rise to the rise to the occasion? Did you see Derek Jeter's last game? No. Comes up in Yankee Stadium, ninth inning, gets a single, wins the game, and Michael Kay, the Yankee announcer, oh, he came up big. The fairy tales of reality. Okay. When he was in the fifth inning and he had bases loaded, why didn't he hit a grand slam? That really would have been the way to end his uh, his end his uh, career. So that's what I mean when I say it is a myth. In other areas, creativity, for example, many people think they become more creative under pressure. It's just the opposite. There's great studies from Harvard, from Princeton, that show that that is just the opposite. Nobody does better under time pressure. When I would play basketball with my nephews, anytime I would want them to miss, all I would do is yell out, three seconds on the clock, and they turn around and throw the ball up. Nobody does better in a pressure moment, not even Michael Jordan. We do, we do worse. So the best you can do is perform close to your capabilities. And that's what the book, to me, one of the aspects of the book is really about, is how to perform closest to your capabilities in the situations in which you have something on the line and the outcome is dependent on your situation. You know, think of the difference between pressure and stress most people feel stress. They'll say, what does that feel like? It feels like I'm overwhelmed. Where a pressure situation, the subjective feeling is I have to produce. And that becomes a good little uh, way for listeners to differentiate between stress and pressure. And stress, just ask yourself, do I feel overwhelmed or do I feel I have to produce? Because when you confuse the two, uh, it's like you treat every stressful situation as, the, as though it's do or die. And you talk about your health, uh, you're on 24-7 alert. You know what that does to your physical capabilities when you are acting like every moment is it do or die? You come home, you're totally exhausted. You have no energy. So just differentiating when you're in a stressful situation versus when you're actually in a pressure situation that in itself becomes a big help. So how how does that matter? Do we do we respond differently to the two? Are there different strategies? Why why is that an important distinction? Because if I am feeling, if I wake up today and I'm and I'm and I'm uh, have a lot of stressful situations, stress is really demands upon you, and when you don't think you have the resources to respond, that's when you feel stress. It's a mismatch between demands. It could be, it's like having uh, too many bills and not enough cash. That would be like financial stress. But there's different ways to deal with that. You can delegate. You can, you can take a loan. You cannot pay a bill. So in a stressful situation, you have multiple ways of responding. In a pressure situation, so the goal is reduction. In a pressure situation, there's only one response, and that's to do it effectively. A, a, a pilot who is stressed can take a nap, but not if you're landing plane on Hudson River. You have to generate a very specific response. So if you go through your day, you think that going to the uh, supermarket, if you don't get there by 5 o'clock because it closes, is a do-or-die situation. You get in your car and you you have to get there and so on. The reality is what if you don't get there? You have plenty of food in your house. You can pick up Chinese if the pizza place is, is closed. And when you make that distinction, 
you can sort of relax and you realize that you have different options. If I don't pick up my cleaning by 5 o'clock, uh, nothing's going to happen. I can get it at 8 o'clock in the morning. It's not a do-or-die situation. And when people confuse the two, they are on high alert 24-7. I would say that people in the retail business, for example, are always confusing stress and pressure. So they're always on edge. That does not have, and then they have to reduce that. All right. And if they have maladaptive ways, then they're going to eat more. And they're just going to say, you know what? I have to do this uh, so I can't, I don't have time for my exercise. When the reality is, if they did their exercise, they would actually be more physically energized and can handle stressful situations better. So when you say, what is the difference in a stressful situation, there's multiple ways to respond. In a pressure situation, there's only one way to respond. So going up in the ninth inning and you need a hit, you can't take a nap. Mm -hmm. Taking a deep breath will help you, but you still have to produce the response. So in a stressful situation, you still, you have to relax. In a pressure situation, you have to relax, but you still have to perform. Gotcha. So what is it about pressure that makes us underperform? Well, I would say, what was the first pressure moment do you think that man ever had? Uh, well, so um, probably some life or death situation with, uh, with some beast that uh, saw us as, as prey. That's right. Life or death. Where do you think the expression do or die came from? Like in March Madness, the basketball tournament, it's every game is you either win or you are out. So I actually believe as a psychologist, I like to call this primal pressure. It's, it's like think of, think of the student who comes home from school and, oh, I got rejected from Princeton. My life is over. Now, I would say that 100% of parents would tell their son or daughter in that situation, oh, you stop it. Your life's not over. So you go to, you go to Yale and, and, instead. Unless they you're, went you're to sort of like, Right. You're, you, you're, you're, like, you're over-exaggerating. Yeah. But I would say that there are many people when they give a presentation at work that in their mind, and for them, they're thinking this is a do-or-die situation. They're doing the same thing as your kid does. It's that primal feeling because for your ancestors, it was a do or die situation. You don't, you don't get away from that beast. You're dead. You don't make the jump to the other side of the ledge. You're dead. There yeah, but is wouldn't, no. But wouldn't, wouldn't yeah, some part of me thought before I read your book that that would encourage me to do. If, you know, if the option is die, then wouldn't I focus yeah, but here's all why my attention? Go ahead. Because you start thinking of the consequence. It's very important in a pressure situation that you have to stay in the moment. If I'm a student and I'm taking a test, uh, my SATs, and I come up to question 15, it's a vocabulary word I don't know. If I start thinking, oh, my God, I don't know this. I'm not going to get a good score. I'm not going to get into uh, the college of my choice. I start thinking about those thoughts. And pretty soon, time is up. And now I've hurt myself because I didn't stay in the, in the moment. It's like a baseball player thinking about the outcome of the game when they're in the third inning and, and he is up at play. So when you say, 
you would think that would make it better. No, because we're thinking about the consequences. And the consequences in the outcome prevent you from focusing on the task at at hand. That's why you hear, I was just watching uh, at Wimbledon, Serena Williams, notice she told the press, do not ask me any questions about me winning the Grand Slam. I've got to win seven other matches. I, I don't want to think like that. And she said constantly, she just wants to stay in the moment on every play. So that's why thinking about it, it's like I used to see with my daughter, she'd have a job interview. And what if I don't get the job and so on? Well, if you're thinking that going in, how can you concentrate on doing your, doing your best? Mm. So let's, let's talk a little bit about those, the specific mechanisms. So, um, and I think you have a great section about the, the choke. The, the sort of predictable, suboptimal performance under pressure conditions when you want to do your best. And you, have, you distinguish between two different kinds of memory, working memory and procedural memory. Can you kind of explain those and show how they, how they go together in our understanding of, of choking and not choking? Sure. And I'm glad you, you made the point that they go together because what I found is too many researchers uh, think of them as being independent types of memories because they are in different parts of the brain, which for me is totally irrelevant. Uh, they are interrelated. Now, here's an example that most people will relate to. Uh, do you remember when you were learning how to drive? Yep. Okay, you got in the car, and what did you do? Especially if, if, if your parents are next to you or driving instructors. My next dad to you. is next to me. I am fumbling around. Um, I'm trying to remember what to do first. I'm trying not to hit the car behind me as I'm backing out of a parking space. Uh, I'm sweating and I'm concentrating like a coiled spring. Okay. And, and you had, so you're thinking of. I got to put the keys in. I got to look over my right shoulder. You look in your mirror on your side. Yeah, you make you make sure your seatbelt is on. You had sort of like a procedural checklist that you would go through. Correct. Right. O over and over okay. again, and obsessively, and yeah, it was you know ev everything. Right. Everything required full concentration. I wasn't able to uh, to think about anything else. Right now, when you get into your car, it's probably a very different experience. I, I, I don't think that you consciously think, I got to do this first, then this, then this, then this, then this. You just do it, correct? Right. And interesting, you know, right now I'm in the middle of, of uh, doing the 60 hours of driving practice with my 15 year old son. So I see it from both sides. And I see, you know, the places in which he's going to, from, um, from step by step to a little bit of autopilot. And yeah, there's a huge, huge difference. Right. So when you first start uh, learning something, like the musician who was first learning a, uh, a piano piece or learning how to play the guitar, you have to process a lot of information and you have to hold on to it. That is your working memory. Think, it's like learning a math problem. Uh, first, you had to learn the the to do a calcul a, a difficult problem. You know, if I say uh, ten times six, you don't even think twice, and you just say sixty. But first, you had to learn your multiplication tables. 
And people should think of a working memory like a um, iPad. Now, do you, do you have an iPad, Howard? Yes. Okay. Now, I don't have one, but I do know that they come in different um, models with, I guess, the term of megabytes. Some of them have more storage than others, correct? Right. Okay. One of the things that gives smart kids, anybody who's going to an Ivy League school, for example, one of the things that allows them to do that is they have a very good iPad. They can store a lot of information on it. That is working memory capacity. So that means that if I'm taking a French test tomorrow, the only information that I want on my iPad is information about the French Revolution. I don't want any information on that iPad such as, what if I don't do well on this test? Because if I start thinking, worry, have these worried thoughts, it takes some of that information on that iPad and it pushes it off. So now when I need to think of uh, the answer, I don't have that information. Instead, I have all these worried thoughts. That is your working memory. Now, after you have mastered a task like math, like driving, like a golf swing, and it becomes automatic, that is your procedural memory. So procedural memory really comes into play when you are doing something that you have rehearsed over and over and over. It, it has become a, a habit. When I am uh, uh, making myself coffee in the morning, I don't really think about what I'm doing. It's just going through the uh, motions. I can be thinking about something else. Uh, what happens when we choke, we choke for one of two reasons. It's a, well, you know, you've rehearsed the presentation over and over, and then you get up in front of people, and all of a sudden you, you choke. You hear, an, you hear the sports analyst say, he's thinking too much. And what that means is that you're getting in the way of your procedural memory. Why is a golfer thinking about a swing that he's done a zillion times? A musician, I had a great quote from uh, Springsteen's wife, Patty, who she said that when she was, uh, she performed poorly in a concert once because she started thinking of, gee, did I call the babysitter? I can't remember. And all of a sudden she made a mistake. <laughs> and her comment is when you're up on stage, you just got to play. It becomes automatic. So one of the reasons we choke on well-rehearsed tasks is we start to become too self-conscious. We start to have these thoughts. The kid who walks out and uh, for an audition or the school play or their school recital and there's 500 uh, people in the auditorium, if that student starts to think, am I playing my guitar right? Am I looking okay? That thinking interrupts the procedure that they have already mastered. And that's when they make a mistake. So for, it's like a basketball player. Why does a basketball player miss a foul shot that he's done thousands and thousands of times? Now, many of them miss at the end of the game because they're tired. It has nothing to do with the pressure. They're just, I don't have the energy anymore to uh, get the ball over the, um, you know, over the rim. But if that is not the case, they might be thinking about their Nike contract. 
And they might be thinking about, am I doing this right? Am I holding the ball right? Those are the thoughts that start to interrupt an automatic procedure. Working memory is when you're doing a judgment test, um, taking a test, for example, thinking on your feet, you're giving a presentation, and now people start asking you questions. Uh, if you start wondering when you're asking, somebody's asking you a question, what does my boss think? How am I coming across? You know, entertaining other thoughts. Uh, that's what causes people to be- perform below their capabilities, that they have these other thoughts that come in and they take up space on their working memory uh, iPad, so to speak, and they lose the information that they're supposed to be concentrating concentrating on. So either you're thinking too much or you're thinking about the wrong things. That's why people perform below their capabilities. That's why you've seen a million movies where the person says to the kid, will you pay attention? What do you think is happening when a person's not paying attention? They're thinking about other things. We can call it daydreaming, but they're thinking about other things rather than staying focus. This is why athletes listen to music. Before, Serena Williams was was listening to music when she was warming up. She had her headphones on. Because if you're thinking about music, you can't possibly be thinking about the consequences of what's going to happen. It keeps you in the moment. That's why tuning into your senses and what you see. You know, when I give a presentation, the first thing I do is I look at the audience and make eye contact with people. That keeps me in the moment. If I'm focusing on somebody in the fifth row, I cannot be thinking, what if I don't do well? They become incompatible thoughts. So you talk a lot about um, cognitive appraisal, which I guess is how, how you think about a situation will determine whether you experience it as as pressured or not, right? That pr- pressure is not inherent in, in circumstances. Pressure is based on how you see it. So you have an example of uh, like a surgeon about to perform heart surgery compared to a baker making a cake for the friend. And most of us would say, well, the surgeon is under more pressure, but that's really depends, right? The the baker could be thinking about it in terms of this is the most important cake. This is my good friend. Everyone's going to see this. What if the dough, what if the batter doesn't rise? So pressure is not inherent externally, right? It's how we approach situations. So what are some of the things that we do that either make things worse or better in terms of whether we see them as, as pressure? That, that is a great question. And it also gets to the point that there has been a trend in the last five years um, to become very science oriented, translated. What that means is what's happening in, in uh, neurochemistry, biochemistry, what is happening in terms of the brain. And what people, to, to me, that is interesting, but it's irrelevant because the brain is going to do what the brain does based on how you process information. A philosopher said 2,000 years ago, man is not troubled by events, but rather what he or she tells themselves those events mean. And Bobby Jones, maybe the greatest golfer of all time, said that golf is played within the fairway, within six inches, you know, between your, your ears in terms of your thinking. And that process of how we 
interpret information is called, as you said, cognitive appraisal. And what I have found over and over and over is that how you appraise a pressure moment is probably the most important thing in terms of how you do it. And the differential is that people who perform close to their capabilities perceive or interpret a pressure situation as an opportunity, as something that is fun, as a challenge. See, we all like challenges. People come home and they, they want, I want a job that is challenging. Nobody says, I want a job that's going to be a lot of pressure. <laughs> who, who would say that? We, we don't want that. LeBron James doesn't even use the word pressure in his vocabulary. He just uses the word challenge. So that is very crucial. The, the, the people need to ask themselves that are listening, do you perceive a pressure situation as something that is threatening or do you perceive it as an opportunity? That's the, ma that's the major um, mental set. You know, the mindset has become another popular term. And what I have found is I have identified what is the mindset of a person who can perform to his or her capability in a pressure situation. And the first part of that mindset is to have be positive, which on a concrete basis means start to use words, opportunity and challenge. Now, my two kids are the opposite. My daughter will perceive a pressure moment, such as a job interview being recruited by somebody uh, as a threat. My son will perceive the same situation as an opportunity. And as a result, he's much calmer and gives himself a better opportunity to succeed. You know, I'm in my uh, 60s. So I will tell you that when I did my first presentation at uh, UCLA or for an organization called the White YPO, Young President's Organization, I used to go in and I'd be so nervous. Why was I nervous? Because I'm telling myself, oh, these people are all presidents of companies. They're, they're important. Or, or um, these are all executives and so on. Uh, I don't even want to tell you what I'm thinking about my audience now when I give a presentation. <laughs> but for sure, I'm not thinking this is really an important group. Why would I tell myself that? That only creates more pressure. So, so, so another part of the... Go ahead. Yes. Over the weekend, I was watching the Wimbledon men's final, the first couple of sets. And for the two hours before that, I had been reading, um, performing under pressure. So I wasn't going to watch the match because I don't watch sports anymore for, for some reason. But and I really didn't care who won. But I watched the first two sets with your book in my head. And so I'm curious, I'm curious whether whether you saw that match or read about it later and how you know, what did what did you see from a perspective of were they viewing was you know um, Djokovic and Federer were they viewing it as a threat or, or an opportunity? They always view it at that level, both of them. You know, just because one player loses doesn't mean he choked. I mean, the 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 idea is before that match started, I was rooting for Federer, but I said, you know what, the other night's better. So if they both play their best, the best is going to win. That's not choking. He didn't, he didn't win. If Federer was choking, he'd lose every game six up. That would be below his capability. So I think at that level, I think they're all thinking that it's, a, um, that it's an opportunity. You can't get to that level. 
the the I, I think now with Tiger Woods, it's a little different of what he's gone through. I think that he that when he is playing in the in the British Open, you know, I think he's thinking I got to do this. He's putting a lot of pressure on himself. He's making it more important. I want people to know that the more important they make something, the more pressure they are creating. So, you know, I had a great quote from Joe Flacco, quarterback of the Ravens, before he played in the Super Bowl. And the question was, how do you handle the pressure of the Super Bowl? And his response was, what any elite athlete would say, it's just another game. Now, the media hates that. Because to the media, it's not another game. It's the Super Bowl. How can he say that? It's so important. But the reality is, in his mind, that's what he's thinking. Right. What How many times have I heard baseball? Go ahead. Yeah, there's a whole narrative, uh, you know, that's kind of a foundational narrative of our culture uh, around the hero's journey. And it's it baked into that is this idea of redemption of this one moment in which you overcome that which you weren't able to overcome in the past. Right. So it's, like it's very it's very hard for someone to 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 be at that moment at the the uh, the pinnacle, uh, the, the precipice of success and say, well, this is just another moment because because we have a we have a story arc in our heads that that encouraged the media and that our popular culture and that we tell ourselves. Right. So that uh, it, it's not so interesting to watch a movie in which nothing matters that much. No, no one moment matters. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You, you know, you know, we, 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 it creates the drama. Nobody's watching a um, football game. If one team is winning by 50 points and there's three minutes left. So, you know, we, the drama, but the reality is the people who go into situation, I have to redeem myself. This is my chance and so on. I think that was happening with Alex Rodriguez one year. Uh, maybe, I think it was maybe two or three years ago where every time he was coming up in a quote, clutch situation, he was striking out. Remember then they took him out for a pinch hitter. Uh, he was playing so bad. I think what his mindset was going in is I have to prove myself. This is another opportunity and so on. Rather than, you know what, just relax and focus on uh, doing my best. That is always the best thing. You can't do better than your best. The one thing I would tell parents is to make sure that the main message to give your son or daughter is just do your best. In fact, Serena Williams says that's what she says. That's what her mission is in every match, just to do your best. You can't do better than that. So when you buy into this myth of clutch, what happens is you think you have to do better than your best. It's like the average pitcher going out when all they are saying to him is just pitch what you usually do, which is five innings. But if that pitcher thinks I have to do better than that, he's putting more pressure on himself and pressure makes you do worse. And also in, in terms of your muscular skeleton, the more pressure you put on yourself, it impacts your muscular coordination. Have you ever seen the movie? It's like earlier you said you're fumbling with the keys. Why would you fumble with the keys? Yeah. <laughs> what must be going in? What's going through your head? So that's another cue that I would want people to think that every time they are feeling distress or anxiety, to use that as a signal that it's time to re-examine their thoughts. If you're going into a situation and you are anxious, 
you're not telling yourself this is going to be fun. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have a great, uh, you know, a great time. So you, so that's something people can use immediately. You you um, pull in a lot of studies to explain and support your your views. One of my favorites was the study about students taking a test where they were instructed on how to frame their own test anxiety. Could you describe that study and what it means to you? Yeah, the the study was actually at a couple of universities, uh, one being done at at Stanford, where they give a bunch of students a test and they tell one half of the group, uh, this is, it was an IQ test. And the reason we're giving you this test is so we can learn a little more about you. Uh, that's all. It has nothing to do with academics or anything. And they, the instructions to the other group was that this test is going to be used to plot your academic future here. So they increased the importance of it. And the group that was told that the test is very important, it's going to impact your academic future. And remember, all these kids have the same IQ. So the, the students were all equal. The group that was given the instruction that this test is really going to be important to plan your uh, future is the group that did worse. That result has been replicated over and over and over. Students who are told that a presentation that you are given is going to decide whether you can take you know, the next class, your teachers will be in the audience, versus students who are told, uh, it's a meaningless presentation. It doesn't mean anything. The group that is always told that there's something dependent on the outcome that's going to impact them always do always do worse. And there's a zillion studies like that in all different ways. Right. And what they all I, come I, down to show go ahead. Sorry. is how you interpret the situation is crucial. Right. That's I, really the, the finding. I was thinking of a slightly different one. I didn't articulate it well. This was the GRE study by uh, Jeremy Jameson around actually telling the students that the anxiety they felt was helping them? Ah, yes, a, a framing, a framing it. So that, that he was at University of Rochester, and the study was that it's normal to get anxious, but when you frame the anxiety, it's like taking a, um, giving a presentation. If somebody is uh, getting a little anxious, that is understandable. But if you are... If you tell the person that the anxiety is part of the process and that's a good thing, and it's really excitement, the person does much better. In other words, framing the anxiety as something that is useful versus something that is detrimental and is going to throw you off the course. It's if you're having the same physiological response, but the interpretation makes you respond very, very um, differently. I had a patient, for example. Uh, who was getting out of the hospital, and she was really anxious. And I said, let me ask you something. Are you telling me that you are anxious that you're going to get out of the hospital, live in your own apartment, not have to deal with your crazy parents, have your friends over whenever you want? Are you telling me you're anxious about that, or are you excited? And she thought for a second. She said, yeah, I'm excited. Hmm. It was the same physiology, but framing it differently moved it from excitement to anxious. What would you rather be? 
Would you rather be excited about something or would you rather be anxious about something? And for me, as somebody who is 20 years older than the researcher, my first thought is, are you serious? Do you actually need to do more research to demonstrate this point? It's like, it's like you're reading something that says, uh, and a study was done that shows that people with a good sense of humor uh, handle stress uh, better. Really? Do we need any more research on the importance of humor? Don't we already know that? So this is an irrefutable point. How you appraise the situation, if you appraise it as threatening, negative, you're not going to have a good response. If you appraise a situation as positive and opportunity, it's like a performance appraisal. Some people go into a performance appraisal feeling that this is a threat. I'm going to get a bad review. My career is over. Okay. The person who goes in, this is an opportunity for me to learn how my boss perceives me. This is an opportunity where I can really develop myself. Which performance appraisal do you think is going to be more productive? Right. Obviously the second one. But, you know, you say, well, why, why, do, why do we need, um, you know, more studies? I think one reason is that the entire world operates as if pressure is not only good, but utterly necessary. I think a lot of people feel like, well, if I wasn't under pressure, I wouldn't prepare I wouldn't care. I would just sit around eating bonbons. That it's the you know, and and we see this in the way most corporations uh, motivate employees. We see this in the way well, that well, coaches and parents motivate kids, and we see this in the way in which we try to motivate ourselves. It, it, it sounds like from your research that most of us, most of the time, are being completely counterproductive. Yes, and 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 I would also challenge that point. I would say that most people do not think that, that uh, they want pressure in their lives. People get out of the financial world as being a financial advisor because they don't want the pressure. I've never met somebody working in a law firm saying the pressure here is, is making me do better. What, they, what they're saying is the pressure here is making me uh, need a three-week um, you know, vacation. And as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's like this is worldwide. You know, the subject of pressure has been studied all over the, all over the world, in China, Hans Kong, the UK, Germany. And the findings are consistent that it makes you do worse. Companies, especially in, in uh, retail, make the mistake of thinking that the way you motivate a person is to put more pressure on them. Now, in reality, this is why retail just reported their terrible findings, terrible uh, business results. That makes people do worse. I don't know anybody who wants to go into a situation in, in, uh, where there's more pressure on them. That doesn't make them do better. If I had another six months to write my book, I was under time pressure, it would have been 100 times better. I don't like that feeling. And... It was a great study, um, Heidi Gardner at Harvard, where she studied just tens of thousands of people, uh, and where she showed that the, the finding, you know, are people more productive? Are they more creative? People many times confuse quantity of work with quality of work. So the student who says, I stayed up all night and I got, see, I got the paper done. I crammed. Yeah, but it's a lousy paper. You might get more done. But the quality consistently is proven to be is proven to be worse. 
So I, I think that, you know, I call this the age of the age of pressure. And I think it's epidemic. And that's why I said that term pressure anxiety. Everybody's walking around feeling that they, they have to produce 24-7. You know, you told me that you live out in the, in the country. Well, why aren't you living in a more pressured environment if it's so good? If it's going to make you so more productive, then why aren't you moving into New York City where you can pay five times uh, what your, your rent is, have much more crowds, always be in a rush? Why wouldn't you do that if it's going to make you, if it's going to make you better? According to that, everybody should say, we want to be in the most pressure-intensified types of environments. Well, I think people feel like if, you know, the only thing that motivates me is the pressure. So I don't I don't necessarily want to be in a crucible, but I want some. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know. I'm thinking for, for myself, there are if I was giving a presentation to eight people, even though like I want to do my best, I wouldn't prepare as hard as if I know it's a crowd of 3000 that are going to be listening to me. And I would rather be out in my garden, playing catch, running, playing guitar. But it's it's that perceived pressure, which is maybe, you know, it's maybe not too much, but, uh, you know, I don't, so I don't, I don't exactly know whether I'm just thinking of it as a an opportunity, but it still makes me do things that I wouldn't do otherwise. Like some part of me just wants to sit on the couch and eat bonbons. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> and so, so I'm looking at... You know, and I think we take pressure as as a kind of a false motivator when we aren't really in touch with our deeper motivations. Like there are days when I get up and I can do some great writing because I have love in my heart and I'm like, I have something to share. And when I when the, when those days occur, I don't worry about who's going to read this. What will they think? Am I going to get criticized but there's other days where I kind of I'm not tuned into that. And so I have to kind of create four horsemen of, of pressure to uh -huh. um, to push me forward. So I want to I want to well, make sure. Yeah, go ahead. The, the I think that has to do more with um, the idea of um, of arousing yourself based on the. By, by changing the perception of how important something is. I, I think when you use an example of eight people versus 3,000 people, what you're really saying is that you find that the, the one to 3,000 is much more important. That would be like saying, okay, I'm doing a presentation at, uh, at Wharton versus the, um, uh, my uh, community uh, high school. So I say, you know, I'm feeling nothing with the community high school. I'm just going to go in and do my thing. But if it's a Wharton presentation, I'm going to feel more pressure because in my mind, I'm saying that it's more important. And what I'm saying is that what is counterintuitive is that's the mistake. That the 3001, by telling you the, the, the presentation to 3,000 people, if you tell yourself this is really much more important and you're increasing pressure, you'll actually end up doing, doing worse. You'll actually probably, when you are relaxed, talking to eight people, communicate in a much more effective, effective way and probably enjoy the experience much, much more. I, I, it's, it's comical that public speaking is a major fear. I always say to people who have public speaking issues, 
I said, look, if we were in somebody's house and you were talking about what you do and there were just four of us, what would that be like? Well, that's not a problem. Well, why would it change then if there's 400 people? Well, what is going on? And what is going on is the person starts to fill themselves with these thoughts. Remember, you can break down a pressure situation. And, and the elements are, one, is that the situation is important to you. Two, you perceive that the outcome is dependent on your situation. And three, there's a level of uncertainty. And the value of doing that is if I say, you know, why are you feeling, you know, pressure? I was, and the person says, well, I don't know how people are going to react. Well, that's the uncertainty. If you knew that everybody was going to say, this is phenomenal, this is great, then you're not feeling any pressure at all. So one of the things I do is I just assume that. When I give a presentation, I start out with the assumption, I'm educating these people. They're going to think this is great. That takes the pressure off right off the bat. What you're doing is you're worried about how these 3,000 people are going to evaluate you. That's why when a parent says, sweetheart, we'll be in the fifth row, and we, we know you're going to make us proud, that's a terrible thing for a parent to say to a kid. Because now the kid is thinking, what if I don't do well? Are my parents still going to love me? Will they still be proud of me? And when he or she needs to be focusing on playing their guitar, they start to have those thoughts about how their parents are going to react. That's what derails their performance. That's why you hear people almost intuitively say, what were you thinking when you were up there? How could you do that? There's a great scene in the movie Top Gun. Did you ever see it? I haven't, no. Tom Cruise plays a fighter pilot, and his flight instructor says, uh, he goes by the name of Maverick, he says, Maverick, what were you thinking up there? And his response was, think? You don't have time to think up there. You're thinking you're dead. Now, what he really meant was that he's thinking so quickly, he's not aware of it. He's just, it's not flying by instinct. You know, I can't fly a jet plane by instinct. What he is really saying is I've practiced this so many times, I don't have to think. I'm thinking, but I'm not really uh, coherent. I'm not really aware of what my thinking, of what my thinking is. And that's what, that's what happens. So uh, this is why I said earlier that part of the mindset is to minimize or shrink the importance of the situation. Because in a pressure situation, you make it more important than it really is. That's that do or die. That's a, that's a primal feeling that, that uh, people have. It's buried and it belongs in the past. Because any presentation you give is never a do or die situation. It might feel like it is. But literally, it really isn't. I've given many bad presentations, and you know what? There's always another one. And that's another way I would want people to think is a mindset. Multiple opportunities, because what pressure does, it, it rigidifies your thinking. And you start to think, this is the only opportunity I'm ever going to have. So for a, a agent to say to the actor, Spielberg's in the audience. This is the, you're never going to get this opportunity again that will actually make the person do worse. So I'm reminded at this point of a one of my favorite um, comic sketches is a, a Bob Newhart sketch where he's a psychologist and a person comes to see him and her problem is she has this anxiety, this fear of being buried alive in a box. And he, he, his entire treatment is he yells, stop it at her. 
So to, to some extent, there's the way in which I think people can hear this and say, oh, yeah, well, obviously, I would like to think of things as challenges and opportunities rather than threats. I would like to not worry about it, but I do. So are there ways in which we can actually change our thinking? Or is this really descriptive that people who think right don't feel don't underperform? Or is, is there stuff we can actually do that, that is proven to work to to help us respond better by de depressurizing? Great. Again, a, a, a great question, because, yes, there are some people who ever since they were a kid, maybe it has to do with their parents, their experiences, you know, what work, you know, it's, it's like the fourth grader who's playing in an after after school uh, softball game. So he gets his first at bat and just by the luck of the draw, his thought is, uh, now I'm going to have some fun. This is my opportunity. And then they get a hit. Well, that experience becomes cemented and increases the chances. The next at bat, they're thinking the same thing versus a, it's like a, a kid who uh, uh, starts to cry because they want something when they're five years old. And all of a sudden the parents say, okay, here, here's the candy bar. Well, now the kid has learned, uh, you know what? If I get upset, I'm going to get what I want. And that becomes their style. So, so 30 years later, when they're in a relationship, anytime their partner doesn't want to do what they want to do, they start yelling and crying, and the partner says, all right, we'll do it. It becomes reinforced. So some of, our, some of us do this naturally, and, and it just works out for us. For those who don't do it naturally, you have to create a infrastructure for yourself. And I would recommend... This is what people don't want, want to do, Howard. And, and, you know, you've had a lot of experience where giving people information about, um, you know, how to eat and, and, and how they should build, you know, uh, certain types of food into their diet. Well, I used to work at UCLA's weight reduction clinic, and a patient would come in. They'd say, oh, they want to lose weight. And I said, well, we all want to lose weight. Are you willing to do what is required to lose weight? And that's a different question because most people don't want to take action. I would tell people you can't take Jane Fonda's home video, stick it in a VCR machine, lie in bed, watch it, and expect to get in shape. You need to do it. So if a person is really serious, I would suggest that they take some of the little post tags and they put on their computer, they put on their desk, they put on their bathroom mirror words like opportunity and challenge. And because what you're doing is that's how you start to internalize a the right mindset that will help you. If you're not willing to give yourself cues, if you're not willing to, you can't just read a book and say, now this is going to change. You have to still do what the book, what the therapist, what the, the exercise instructor, what the nutritionist is recommending. I don't really need somebody to tell me that, that after this phone call, that if I go and open up my refrigerator and I take out some peanut brittle, do I really need somebody to tell me that that's not good for me? I know that. But changing the habit is different. If I would throw out that peanut brittle, that would be on the road to a uh, productive um, habit. I'm getting it out of my environment. 
So the things that you have to do is to take action. And that's what most people don't want to do. Why do you think there's so many books out? If, if, if people took action, you only need one book. Because many books have the same, same principles. But because people don't take action, uh, we get into these habitual ways of responding. You have to help yourself. And one of the things that how you can help yourself is to give yourself cues. Why do parents, I mean, when your kids were five years old, I bet that you had a lot of little uh, notes on the refrigerator, correct? In terms of, you know, what a soccer game is or what a class or a dance class. And parent, I said to parents, why do you have those notes on your refrigerator? Well, then we'll forget. Why do you have a calendar? Oh, because I'll forget. That's exactly my point. That in a pressure situation, people will forget that it's an opportunity. They'll think of it as threatening because they haven't given themselves the support structure to, on a daily basis, make those mental mindsets. So you you have to you have to take action. So on and those are some ways of of doing it. Yeah. So in in parts two and three of performing under pressure. Part two, you have 22 pressure solutions, um, which are, you know, very, very discreet things you can do, like a, an a la carte menu of pre preparation and in the moment responses to various kinds of um, pressurization. And in part three, you have a, like an overall framework of, of, of confidence, optimism, tenacity and enthusiasm, which you abbreviate as coat, like a coat of armor against stress. For, I recommend that people go get the book because the the overall experience of kind of going through it step by step and every chapter does have hints, things to do, things to stop doing. But if, if someone is just listening to this and they before before they go and, and order it from their local independent bookseller or download it as an ebook, um, what is the one thing you would have people take action on right now that can make a big difference? Wow, the one thing. Or the first, I, I the, let's say, say the, the first thing. Yeah, I would I would say is is the point that we've discussed, which is getting a person to realize how do they perceive a pressure moment, and I think that is crucial. How do you appraise it? Is it threatening, or is it an opportunity? Because if you perceive it as threatening, you distance yourself in the moment that you start to, your confidence is shaken. If you see it as an opportunity, it allows you to approach the situation without trepidation. And I'd say that's the beginning of the, um, of the uh, appropriate mindset to, to have. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the most important thing. Uh, I find over and over as a parent, that any time my kids are speaking to me and they're going, whether it's, you know, going in for a interview or my son has a chance to meet with uh, an important client and, and land a big deal, I'm always responding with, it's a great opportunity. And it puts a, it puts a positive spin. It's not just positive to be positive. It's, it's to have a positive spin because it impacts how you approach the, um, how you approach the situation. And I think that's the most uh, important thing. And I see that over and over, not just in elite athletes, but in successful 
people in in general. And when I say success, I am not defining it in terms of your occupational status or how much money you know or how much money you make. There's there's young people are what I like to call pressure performers. That means like if you're in your twenties, your thirties, your early forties Every situation that you have is important because it can advance you. Remember, people from the dawn of man who did well in a pressure moment, they got to live. They got to advance. There are other people like myself, like my friends. I have a lot of friends who are very, very successful lawyers. None of them feel pressure when they walk into a courtroom. Um, none of them feel pressure when they have to give a closing argument. Their pressure that they feel is around, uh, how much longer do I have to pay for my daughter's apartment? How much longer do I have to, uh, you know, pay for my son's uh, education? These are what I call pressure reducers, not performers. These people are more concerned with reducing the daily feelings of pressure that they have that feels like a burden, that they're carrying a weight, and they are fearful that, how much longer can I carry this? How much longer can I be productive? When is it going to end? And what will I do if it does end? These people need to do a different set of strategies rather than, quote, pressure solutions. And I'll tell you that one is that I have been doing, I used to laugh when I would read this in other books and so on, and now it's in my own book and, and it's something I practice, is that I sit on my couch every night for about five minutes and I reflect on my life and I think, you know what? Uh, I have two wonderful kids. They're self-deficient. I have great relationships with them. I have great friends. Um, I have uh, a, a new book. Uh, I can go out with any woman that's over 65. Uh, when I think of all these things, it makes me feel good and it makes me energized. And it's a cliche, but it's taught me to see the glass as half full rather than half empty. It makes me optimistic. And people really, unless you read the research, you cannot really understand the benefit of having an optimistic outlook on life in, in everything. I mean, people who are optimistic have much better health. Do you know why? Um, partly because they take actions that, that will improve their health because they think they can. Exactly, they, they, because they think that if they go, to, if they keep their doctor's appointment, they can actually uh, improve their health. People who have a pessimistic outlook on life, who are cynical every single day, they skip their doctor's appointments because their attitude is it's not going to do anything, it's not going to help me. I mean, it's amazing. Students who have an optimistic personality end up enjoying their first year of college much more than students who don't. So I have found for people, you know, look at the way that you express yourself. Do you actually have an optimistic vocabulary? Do you actually blame yourself? You know, how do you explain your life? A good exercise for people to do is ask themselves, um, how did you get in the situation that you're in? What are the life factors that have 
that have done this. And there's a very different way in terms of how an optimist explains his or her life versus a um, you know a pessimist. Something ha- something good happens to a pessimist, and they think it won't last. Something good happens to an optimist, and they say, "I'm on a roll. This is going to last forever." It's 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 very very different. And people should also know is that nobody invented confidence, nobody invented optimism. Nobody invented tenacity or enthusiasm. These are attributes that evolved. We have them because they help us deal with the adversities of, you know, of life. So, you know, when you mention that second section of the book, those precious solutions, those are short-term solutions. Those are solutions of, oh, I have an interview coming up. I'm taking a test. Uh, I have an audition. I have a difficult conversation. That's what those are for. But the real takeout, and what I wish for everybody, is to instill those attributes of confidence, optimism, tenacity, enthusiasm, because those are the attributes that help you do your best on a daily basis. And if you're doing your best on a daily basis, some of the situations that you encounter will be those pressure moments. And because you're doing your best on a daily basis, like Eric Jeter, it increases the chances that in the majority of the pressure moments, you will do uh, the best that you can do. Not better than your best. You're not rising to the occasion, but you won't do worse. And usually, you know, you think of all the presentations you've, you've done, your best is usually good enough. Sometimes it isn't, but usually it is good enough. Right. And I, re- I remember st- when I first started studying um, stress and health and health behaviors, the first article we got to read, and I still have a copy in, uh, in my file drawer right next to my desk, is 1977 Albert Bandura on self-efficacy. And I was recently talking to a friend who does a lot of coaching of entrepreneurs around business success. And he works with people who pay him, you know, five, ten thousand dollars a month for a couple hours of conversation. So you think these people who who have the money, who are incredibly motivated. So I said, what what separates people who really benefit from your advice and those who don't? He said it all comes down to one thing. The people who think they can do it. Will will succeed. The people who kind of aren't sure or doubt they can do it. You know, the the people who come in with doubts, um, it 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 stops them in their tracks, and they don't even take the steps. And none of the steps is particularly hard. Well, again, I would agree with that. And but the key is, is then you still have to see creating the perception of success is very important. Creating the perception that a person can do something is very important. And that is why it's like the importance of confidence. People should not compete his confidence with, with um, you know, self-efficacy with self-esteem. Self-esteem is just general feelings about yourself. I can have very good self-esteem, but I have no sense of self-efficacy if I'm playing Roger Federer in terms of returning to serve. However, if I'm taking a math test, I can have uh, very good self-efficacy. So you have to create and define for yourself uh, successes. The, nothing succeeds like success. This is what builds a sense of confidence. How many times you know, have you seen where the announcer says, 
oh, he got a hit. Now he's playing with confidence. And it changes everything around. And confidence actually is defined as the belief that what you do uh, will get the results that you want. Every basketball player, even though to the viewer it looks like the shot he took is ridiculous, I can guarantee that the basketball player's mind, when he threw up that ball, he thought it was going in. Because if he didn't think it was going in, he wouldn't have thrown it. When a quarterback makes, throws an intercepted pass right before he threw it, he doesn't think it's going to be intercepted. He believes that it's going to be successful. So getting yourself to believe that you can do it, one of the ways you can do that is, is to use what I call micro-successes, where you start to reframe what a success is. So if I have an interview, the success is not getting the job. That's just the outcome. The success is I got the interview. And if I have a good interview, I used to tell my son when he was looking for a job, if, you ha if every interview you walk out and you say it was a good interview, then it's just a matter of, it's a, it's a number game. Because you had a great interview, but you know what? They gave the job to the boss's daughter. It had nothing to do with you. Uh, it's just, that's just the way life works. So I want people to focus on creating micro-successes because it's a way of building up confidence. So if, if somebody's trying to lose 30 pounds, the micro-success becomes... Um, I ate a healthy meal today. And if I ate a healthy meal today, I know I can eat a healthy meal at 8 o'clock tonight for dinner. And if I do it at 8 o'clock, I know I can do it the next day. And you're getting the yes momentum going. For me, the job of the coach, the job of the therapist, the job of the parent, the job of the best friend is to get the other person to believe that they can be successful, not by giving them a pep talk, but by showing them the successes that they are already having in their, in their life by breaking down a big behavior, the big goal, into a whole bunch of little mini goals. All right. Well, that's, that's a great note to end on. So I think all, all of us, whether we... Uh, feel the pressure or not, or feel like we're suffering from it. We all know people who are debilitated by, by pressure. And as you mentioned at the introduction, are turning to very unhealthy behaviors. And so one of the one of the best ways we can, um, you know, heal the world is to help people see that they're already have they already have reason for for confidence and for optimism. And that, and that will that generates the next two steps, the tenacity and enthusiasm. So Hank Weisinger, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. And the book is called Performing Under Pressure. And if people want to follow you and stay in touch and find out more and maybe hire you for uh, for coaching, consulting, therapy or speaking, how do they do that? Uh, two ways. One is they can Contact me at H Weisinger, W E I S I N G E R, at MSN.com. And also, I would like people to follow me uh, on Twitter at uh, Pressure Tweets. And I also want to say that if they do that, I am developing an online course 
that will be launched uh, late this year on performing under uh, pressure. So they can find out more information by contacting me. I'm very excited about it. Awesome. Well, we'll uh, we'll put a link to that when it's when it's ready. If you send it to me, and I really appreciate this this perspective. This this kind of underpins a lot of the stuff that I work with people on around. You know, they know what to do or, or they learn from me how to eat, how to change a lifestyle. And this is really a, a missing piece to, to understand this dynamic. And the nice thing is when people handle it around stress eating, around binging, around um, health behaviors, that the benefits through the rest of their life are uh, pretty much inevitable. So Hank, thanks. So the, uh, yeah, well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the um, opportunity to share the thoughts and enjoyed it very much, Howard. Thank you. Me too. Be well. I hope you got a lot out of this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you'd like to support the show, again, the best way you can do that this week is to go to thunderclap.it and search for Proteinaholic or Garth up at the top search bar and donate a Facebook post or tweet to go out on October 6th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. As always, you can leave a review and some stars on iTunes. You can share this on social media, tell your friends about it. Um, check out Proteinaholic. We now have a, a website going up there. It's changing every day. It's at proteinaholic.com. And a fun place to go there is proteinaholic.com slash quiz, Q-U-I-Z. And you can take the Proteinaholic quiz and see how knowledgeable you are. You can share that with friends. We've been getting a bunch of replies to that. And a lot of people get the first one wrong. So it'd be interesting for you to go test yourself and see about your knowledge about protein, about nutrition, about what the science really says about how we should be eating for our health. In garden news, we've got the fall crops in the ground. They're doing very poorly, except for a few bunches of kale and maruba santo. So we're going to see if we can get another load of horse manure to help support that. We dug out some potatoes, um, sweet potatoes, last week. Some of them are over five pounds. Maybe I'll, I'll post a picture on the Plant Yourself blog, and you can see these bad boys. And muscadine grapes, the scuppernungs, are doing very well right now. And eggplant and okra still chugging along, even as we uh, go into fall. So whatever is growing in your garden, I hope it's sweet, I hope it's nutritious, and I hope it brings you together with your families and communities in abundance as we move into fall. And as always, be well, my friends. <laughs>